DEI test with Eric and Brady. We've got uh, another fabulous guest today. Uh, we're going to talk about sports from a little bit different perspective with me as a photographer, Brady as a writer. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. All right. Hello, hello everyone. I'm Eric Francis. Brady Oldmans is here with me, and we're going to get ready to kick off the next episode of the eye test. And um, where we wanted to start from there, I wanted to go ahead and um, kind of address the, the the elephant in the room as as far as sports photography goes. Probably the question I get more than anything else is about gear. Yeah. What kind of you know what kind of gear should I buy? And blah blah blah. Um, and my response to that question is always, well, uh, what's your budget? <laughs> because it is it is one of those genres of photography where you have to have the best gear you can afford. Um, you know, if you've only got a couple thousand dollars to work with, we can we can make choices within that those confines. But um, to to really like do what we do at the top of the game, so to speak. You really you, gear gear matters, yeah. And which is kind of uh, outside the sports photography. I would never say that because I'm always uh, it's the photographer that matters, not the camera, right? Um, you can take great pictures with your cell phone. It, it, it's the photographer, the eye, and the skill set that makes that makes a a, a, a good photograph. So. It's kind of it, it. It kind of flips it on its head for me because when we do talk about sports photography, and I'll even throw in wildlife photography into that same thing, because you do have to have that big long lens yeah. to get close, because we don't get to get close, and so gear does matter. And I remember I was I was talking this through um, with Mitch one time because um, I was I was going off on on another conversation, and I was. I was talking to Mitch, talking it through with Mitch, and I came up with, uh, how did I put it to him? I said, better camera gear won't make you a better photographer, but better camera gear absolutely can make your photography better. Yeah. Um, There's a reason pros use the best gear. There's a a reason for it because, because it does matter. And, you know, you can make the analogy to a contractor or a plumber or an electrician or any other craftsman, the tools matter. And it's not that they make you better at your job, but they make, they make you more efficient. They can make you more efficient, like having a newer computer that runs faster and, 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 and all those things, it can make you more efficient in your job. And sometimes it can allow you to do things that you couldn't do with lesser gear, with lesser tools. If we look at them in, in that respect of being tools, which is kind of how I look at it. I mean, I, my new gear, I, I switched to Sony um, a year ago, and <laughs> I'll be honest, there's a lot of pictures I get now that I may or may not have been able to pull off with my old gear. Yeah. Because it's just, it, the technology is just so amazing, um, which, which kind of it'll dovetail a little bit into like the advice I give to people. Like if I'm talk, one of my favorite stories is actually with my sister. A few years ago, my, 
my brother-in-law got her a, a little Sony camera with a couple kit lenses, a wide angle zoom and a, and a telephoto zoom. And they'd come up here for Christmas and it is snowed. So we, we took the kids out to go, to go sledding. And she was like, I don't know, like 20 yards away from me trying to set up her camera. And she says, okay. She just yells over and says, okay, big brother, what's, you know, you know, tell me what to set my camera on and how to do this. And I just, I just yelled over to her. I said, Hey, is there a, is there an icon in your, your, your program modes that looks like a little guy running? She says, yeah. I said, put it on that. She's like, and now what? I said, shoot, let it go. Just, and she just looked at me dumbfounded. Like, are you serious? <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, um, the cameras are so good now that, that you can get away I could probably get away with doing my job by putting the camera on auto and just letting the camera make all the decisions with a little, with very minor input from me. I still don't shoot that way. I still shoot completely manual 99% of the time, but that's also more of a, um, I'm, I'm old school. I started my career in film where you had to know the numbers and, you had to know by putting the numbers into your camera what the picture was going to look like because there was no screen to, 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 to look and see if you did it right. You just had to know yeah. what it was going to look like. So I'm a little old school in that respect because I've noticed that some of the, the younger photographers do use a combination of manual and automatic settings a lot more, which kind of makes my old brain explode. I'm like, you don't need to do that. You're, you're actually making the job, your job more difficult. Um, on the backside in the computer. Um, so I just wanted to ad- address that one a little bit because I probably get that question more than anything else, right? What gear do I, what gear should I get? Well, how much money do you have? Yeah. Um, is, is where I have to start because, you know, and, and what, and what are you doing? If you're just a, you know, just a mom taking pictures of her kids' soccer games, I mean, you could use the gear that I do. You don't, you don't need it. It's not necessary. Yeah, I mean, you can get, you can get away with more. You're outside, the sun's shining. You can get away with a lot less. Now, if you're ta- if you're if you're taking pictures of your son's basketball games, well, that requires different tech. It has different technical needs um, that vary from from outside. So, um, those are some of the questions I always ask, and hopefully, sometime down the road, we can get to a place where we we can entertain some of those questions for people um, because it's one that I get, I get asked a lot. And so I just wanted to address that one real quick. You had some of a question that we were talking about earlier. Yes. Yes. Let me, yeah. Let me think about it. The end of the game strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's fascinating to me. Um, Coming off of, you know, some tough Nebraska basketball games, you got a, a shot that I really liked and I think it's it's fascinating to think about, uh, you know, because location, obviously, we talked about it many times, like what makes a good photo, know where to be, know where to stand, know mm-hmm. what makes a good shot. At what point do you do you get in a rhythm or see, like, this person's the star, or this person is, like, on a hot streak or might go, and then when do you say, like, okay, do I, do I anticipate and go for, like, if that person's going to take the game-winning shot, what's my angle, what's my, you know, what do I look for, or depending on where you are on the court, do I go for reaction shot where if that thing falls, then you get the grand picture of everybody's hand. I think up. we're talking about the, the Kisei shot from the other night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
that's an interesting transition that a lot of people don't don't think about because um, most people when they think about sports photography they think of just like catching the peak action stuff the competition and the, and the and and the conflict and and all those those tight shots that we like to shoot as sports photographers um, but in a situation like the other night where um, holy cow it looked like they were going to win mm-hmm. and holy cow we're going to overtime by the time in about a minute left in the, in regulation i had already switched my brain from i don't care about peak action now i'm looking for i i, I liken it to i i take myself out of sports photographer mode and put myself into news photographer mode yeah right i'm look at that moment i'm looking to catch the to capture the story mm-hmm. right the story is going to be holy crap if they pull this off right they've just they just upset a pretty good basketball team when they probably weren't supposed to. Mm-hmm. And, and so I start, I stop, I, I, I put down my big lens. I wasn't even, in fact, at the OT break at the end of regulation, I went back into the, the media workroom and put down my big lens. I didn't even take it out onto the court with me. I was, I was then looking for one specific thing, right? The, the, the reactions, and possibly a, a game-winning shot if it needed to come down to that. I was looking for that one thing, and that was it. And and as that one turned out, that image came down from the other end of the floor on the defensive side with like, I don't know, you look on the clock, there's like two seconds left in the game. They had just gotten a defensive stop and a rebound, and and they fouled one more time. And Kise just walked down the court with his hands up in the air looking up at the scoreboard, Boom, boom, boom! Hit a couple frames, and man, that was that was gold. Yeah, because that was fascinating. Looking, obviously, is a great shot, but then it like, where do you do you sit on the opposite baseline to get like his face squared up? Or I, I, posi- get- I move instead of sitting out farther away from the basket. I was literally like standing or kneeling, almost. You know where that TV photographer is, right by the basket, yeah, yeah, right yeah, by yeah. the hoop, the stanchion there. I was like right over his shoulder. I was just standing there kneeling right there because I wanted it to be mostly right down. Right. And if it was going to be, I thought I had the, I thought I had a different shot at the end of regulation when, because I'd gone over to the other side of the hoop and I was laying down on the floor, shooting up with a wide angle lens and Walker had, had taken that, that shot in the paint really hard up. And I thought, and as it's happening, I thought, holy crap, I'm in the right spot. This is the thing. This is going to be a shot. That's the game. And then it didn't go down. And then clock expired. I was like, dang, that would have been, that would have been the shot. But then again, but as it turned out, I got what I think was a much better storytelling shot. I was able to crop it in in the computer later with just Kisei over here and the scoreboard and the fans and just like everything in one, like, if, if I just had to choose one picture from that game, that's the one. Yeah. Not because it's particularly a great sport, a, like a great action photo or anything, but that was, that picture was the story of the game. Yeah. That, that tells the story. Yeah. And so there, and that's one thing that, um, that I, I, when I mentor younger photographers and things like that, that there's, there's a moment you have to, you have to get out of sports photographer mode. Just try putting, you know, cause I might sit here or position myself here if I'm looking to get just great sports action, you know, the, the, the stuff around the hoop or, or, 
you know, a football game, middle of the field. I might position myself here, but when you, when you realize you, you we're moving out of sports photographer mode and going into news photographer mode, then we're looking to tell the story. What's going to be the important thing. Right. Um, and it kind of harkens back to, to, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times, the Rutgers photo. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Right. Um, all of a sudden my, my brain recognizes and I, and I make a quick switch from sports photographer mode. Sports photographer would have said, stick with the big lens and shoot it tight. Yeah. Right. And get him catching the ball. But that doesn't tell the story. Right. So sometimes you have to transition out of sports photographer mode into news photographer mode and tell the story. And you and you've watched, watched enough football where, like, you know, they just they scored, and right. then the defense makes a big play, and you know, Whipple likes to take a shot down right. the field, and, 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 go. and so all those things play in, and, and you recognize the moment in the game, and go like I like I told you last time we talked about that one, you know, that could if the rest of the season had gone differently, that could have been the moment the season changed. It was definitely the moment the game changed. Absolutely right. So in that microcosm. It was, it was the story that was in my mind. That was the photo from the game. Yeah. Right. Because that was the moment the game changed and, and it went a different way from, from what Rutgers thought it was going to go. So, so yeah, to answer your question, those, there's a time when you have to, you have to switch from, from sports photographer and what you're traditionally looking for there into, into journalist mode, I call it. Right. I'm, I, I'm, it's my job, even though I'm not doing using words, I'm using the camera. It's my job to tell the, try and get the story right here. Yeah. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, you know, I actually, it probably doesn't work out more than it does, but you know, sometimes opportunity shines on you and you get, uh, you get to, you get to make that image. Yeah. So, um, we'll leave that there. Um, we're going to have a great guest here in a minute. Um, Garrett Marovich is a sports psychologist here at a, a local high school that has an interesting background. And um, I contacted him after our last recording, and you and I were talking off air about about some sports psychologist kind of thoughts and and what value things had in in the world now. And then he's got, also got some interesting perspectives on 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 the the next cutting edge of sports performance and development which I think is going to be really interesting. So we'll, uh, we'll get him in here, and we'll go from there. All right, we have Garrett Moravec with us here today. Um, looking forward to this talk quite a bit. I want to get, want to get into some of this uh, sports performance psychology and all these things. And before, I, before we get into questions, I want you to give a little bit of your background, and we'll get that out of the way so people know where you're coming from before we get going. Okay, I played... Uh, high school football, baseball, basketball, track, and then went on to college and played college baseball and semi-pro baseball. So I had a lot of athletic background, and my father happened to take us from uh, Rapid City to Washington, D.C. to get his graduate degree and became a psychologist. So all of his classmates were closer to my age than they were to his, and so they did a lot of practicing on me. So I got a great exposure to psychology and ended up getting a degree in, in sports psychology and then uh, worked for the government 
for a while, and they said, uh, we want you to work on some classified programs. So I worked with the CIA and NSA, DOD, FBI, and did things to shape behavior in a cyber realm to make a, an adversary do unintended things to their targeted means. In other words, I would help them shoot themselves in the foot. Wonderful. So <laughs> they, they couldn't shoot us, bomb us, save lives that way by simply understanding behavioral science. And so they put me in charge of bigger and bigger programs until I was running a $1.3 billion business and a $500 million budget and trying to do all this mental behavioral science blend with, with the cyber realm. Wonderful. And then uh, I uh, coached prior to uh, going into the government at a school that you might know. And if you've ever seen the movie, Remember the Titans? Mm-hmm. I coached there. So the people that were being portrayed in the movie were my real-life mentors. So I missed that. And in about 2012, I decided to leave working for the government in my company, uh, the company I was working for, and then started my own. And it's taken off into an opportunity uh, with my wife and I to uh, have our own business. And in 2016, I said, I need to get back to coaching. So I went to Westside because that was the school that I thought was the best. I'd start at the top and work my way down. And I live smack in between Bellevue East and West, but that was the place I wanted to start with first. And fortunately, there was a informational interview I conducted with uh, Tom Kirkman, the athletic director. Mm-hmm. And there was an opportunity for football. He introduced me to Brett Freund, and three days later was on staff. And then Brett said, oh, you have background in sports psychology, huh? So we started doing a little bit, mm-hmm. and that expanded into more and more. And so we had more teams want to use my services. And then we started uh, with the superintendent of the school. He wanted me to start working with the staff. So this last summer they hired me full-time as peak performance director to work for all of the students and staff within district 66 and conduct peak performance and elite performance activities. That's wonderful. That's incredible. And I'm, I'm even, I'm, even I'm, I'm biased. Yeah. You know, full, full disclosure, full disclosure, Garrett knows my son and he's <laughs> going to have a key role in his life over the next few years. So hearing things like that as a dad just makes me, makes me smile because I know he's in a good, he's in the best place possible for whatever his, where, wherever his path takes him, he's going to learn nothing but great stuff there. So I'm, I'm super excited on that end. Um, one of the reasons we got you here is because after our last broadcast, Brady and I were talking about, because that was, you know, that was right after the national championship game and some, um, was that divisional games at the time? Yeah. Yeah. And it, there, there was this whole, everybody was talking about the, the, you know, the underdog status and trying to cultivate that, that mindset within their teams. And, you know, we were debating on, on, on the value of that kind of trying to establish that mindset and the purpose behind it. And then I, I started down a rabbit hole of how different is it when you are building your program and you actually are an underdog Versus when you've achieved the mountaintop and you're still trying to, to cultivate that, 
that uh, underdog mindset and keep your kids grinding um, and, and to what to what kind of value in that? Because I remember we, we touched on that when Steve was in here. Steve Warren was in here because he told a story on how after they won their, their title in 97, they came back that next year and lost like three games. Yeah. And he was the first to admit that we just weren't, we weren't as sharp. We did not stay sharp. We did not stay hungry. We did not stay focused. We just kind of thought we were there. And, and, and so I wanted to, and, and then you immediately came to mind as somebody who would have great insight on that kind of, that kind of mindset. So what are your thoughts on, on the whole underdog status well, cultivation? I, I think it's just a tool that some coaches like to go to, but in my opinion, I think it's better to have somebody start to feel internally empowered instead of externally empowered. You know, all the accolades and all the recognition or, you know, let's downplay us. So we're not getting too big ahead. I think if we focus on what we can do, that's the only thing we can control is what we can do in our own behavior and trying to make small incremental gains, uh, marginal gains or like compound interest that would work like that. Mm-hmm. But focus on what you can do and how do you raise that bar to the next level to inspire rather than try to motivate. I think inspiration and having a purpose and passion is much stronger than saying, well, we can, we can be that underdog this year and let's have that mentality. I think that's a, it's not a long-term solution. I think it's not going to stick very well because I think understanding behavioral science and understanding vibration and frequency and how all that physics work, we attract what we put out. Everything can be measured. We can measure you. I can measure either one of you guys and see that you have an aura around you, but mm-hmm. also that there's a vibration and frequency that you emanate and I can, I can measure it. Now, let's say I measure yours, Eric, at 8.5. Uh, well, I don't know if that's good or bad. I just know I can measure it. Right. right. So if I can get you to in a place where you're thinking more positive thoughts, you're going to change that vibration and frequency. But because of something called sympathetic resonance, which a vibration that's similar to another vibration, they attract each other. So if you took a tuning fork, let's say, and you wrap it on the side of a table, and there's a bunch of other tuning forks on that table and you take it down that row, nothing happens to any of the other tuning forks except when it gets to the one that's exact same pitch and that other tuning fork will start to vibrate without being touched. So you realize, okay, that's a mm-hmm. physical thing. That's a proof that like energy attracts like, but there's an experiment done a college in California where they took metronomes and I've got a video of that that I can share, but it's 32 metronomes, and they have several people trying to start them, and they're all set to the same beat. But within two and a half minutes, all of those metronomes that were going every which way they wanted to, all align, and all beat exactly the same together in unison. And that is a sympathetic resonance. So if a team is focused on we want to be kind of deemed as the underdog as opposed to we're internally validated. All we care about is what our own stuff is that we can do to make us better and raise it just a little bit each day. That's going to be the vibration that we go to. Because no matter what, a team will vibrate to some energy. Mm-hmm. 
Hopefully it's a good one, but they'll vibrate to something altogether. They'll, they'll settle that a uh, common place of this is what our team is. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I think it, it happened after Georgia, you know, one of the big powers that were like, everybody doubted us said that we were going to win seven games or whatever. And then even after the Super Bowl, you know, Jason Kelsey said people doubted us and everything. And it, so, and I've covering college football, you get, you see some people say like, I'd been doubted or this is for all the doubters. And, you know, some of the ones where it's like, yeah, this, you know, everyone scraps from something or other, but then you get some that are like, you were the like seventh highest rated recruit out of high school ever. And then went to a prestigious, you know, university and played in, and all of these things like, you know, what in like the number three overall pick, what doubters kind of thing. Um, it, it just became more prevalent to the thought of like how much, how much is this internalized for, for self-motivation, for self, um, like that's, that's what motivates them is to prove doubters wrong or to um, t- taking in those external factors and try to motivate self and light the fire from within that way. And how much of it is just trying, like a coach, trying to get the players together and have that unified energy and that unified mindset to go. I, I, I couldn't... I don't know. It, it fascinated me because some of these things are like the same as like 10 years ago. You always mm-hmm. have the, you know, the motivational posters or newspaper clippings on the, on the locker room cork board or whatever. But now you see it almost everywhere with all these, these vastly talented people who may or may not be, you know, like the, the ultimate underdogs of the scrappy team that turned it around right away. So I just was curious, like, what actual value that that would have in in unifying a team like that? I think it's for me. It's a limited value. I think because it's it's external validation. If you look at the Eagles, there's all kinds of doubters about them, you know, and that didn't work so good if they were focusing on I want to prove these doubters wrong. Somebody's going to prove them wrong, and someone's not. But over a long period of time, if you're always worried about what other people think about you, good and bad you're going to be in a very rough life because no one will ever be 100%. I mean, we have an election, right? and 50%, barely maybe 51%, the president wins, but the other guy, 49% of the rest of the population thinks that candidate stinks. Right. It's like, are you... Who's right? It's like, well... That's that's millions of people think that I stink if I'm the president. So I can't win for losing. Yeah. Right. You know, and so I look at that and I say, I need to have a longer term plan and say, how can I empower somebody to say, I want to get better because I have a purpose and a passion. I know I need to make small little incremental gains and I've got to use what Coach Morvick talks about is his motto. And my motto is the will to prepare to win. I think everybody wants to win, but the preparation is the hard part. And that includes like what you were saying earlier was, do you have the strength to prepare yourself mentally to do all the work? Do you have the preparation to say, I got to get good sleep and eating the right foods and have less stress in my life. Am I willing to do those hard things as opposed to maybe I can kind of hope for the, the people from outside saying stuff that makes me get motivated. I got to wait until someone says something that kind of zings me. And then I, Oh, I'm going to show them. I think, well, what if nobody said anything to zing you? Well, what I'm hearing also is that 
and I, I, I agree with it 100%. Like, if you're going to take on that underdog, chip on the shoulder, uh, and that external source of motivation, there's there's a vibrational ceiling to that. Like, you're, you're only going to, it only exists until it doesn't anymore. Right. Right? Once we suppress the underdog status, now what? Now you're, now you're left with nothing to motivate, right? And and uh, I've always told told my kid that, that that when you enjoy the process of like to, to what you were just saying, you know, when you enjoy the process of preparing as much or more than 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 the game that you're preparing for, you're in the right place. You know, like Wyatt's older brother was a baseball player, and man, an hour before practice, he'd have all this stuff. And he's right. Can we go early? I'm like, oh, see, you know, you're in the right place. Right when you and when you can't wait to get to practice, you're in the right place, you know. And and Wyatt's found his thing in, on the football field. He feels the same way about it, you know. He's always the last one out of the locker room. I'm like, gosh, geez, come on, I'm like, Let's go. I'm hungry. Let's go get something to eat. And he's always, but I, but I also I recognize that he enjoy. He's he's in his happy space, right? And you know, you get back to the vibrational, and I'm sure, you know, the the you guys have been working on this long enough now that the the energy in that that locker room has got to be on on some level unconscious level a little intoxicating oh it is right i mean you do you don't want to leave and i and i get it so i don't want to deprive that from him but sometimes i'm hungry and i want to go eat dinner <laughs> let's go kid um but uh but well, i but i love that about them well one of the things that i do at the schools i give them a couple personality inventories. One is a grit test by Angela Duckworth from uh, University of Pennsylvania. She came up with that. Another was uh, the growth mindset by Carol Dweck from Stanford University. And at the beginning of the season, all the kids will take the grit and the growth mindset. Then the vision that all of us coaches have is can we influence through examples or other, like we have um, every week I do a presentation for the football team they call it uh wizard wednesdays because kids nickname me wizard so mm-hmm. i i thought cool name so <laughs> but we score their tests at the beginning and then they take it at the end of the season and what we keep finding is through the last six years that i've been here we've in- increased the scores of all classes until each year we keep keep coming closer and closer to um, a peak, but we continue to set records every year on the highest team grit and highest growth mindset scores, which then is telling us, okay, we're doing something collectively, either in the culture or individually as coaches, to try to influence their behavior to see I can be tougher and stronger and more resilient or I can believe in the possibilities like Carol Dweck mm-hmm. used the expression, if uh, I, I'll ask a player, can you play the trumpet? And most of them say no. And I said, no, you're supposed to say not yet. Just like you were saying earlier, Eric. Yep. So we teach them those things and the possibilities of what they can do start becoming really fascinating to themselves. And they learn tools, different things that they can do to improve their performance immediately or long-term. And we put that package together and it, I think the the record is speaking for itself right now. Going to the state championship four years in a row is we don't need that underdog stuff. We just need keep on doing what we're doing. We don't win every time, but 
you know, that's better. We at least well, get to show up. The the other team gets a vote in that too. Yeah. That's what, it, you know, it's the other side of that, right? You can prepare all you want. It's an oblong ball. Sometimes it doesn't literally, sometimes it doesn't bounce your direction. Yeah. And, and it's the other, the other thing that you guys talk about a lot is like how you react, right? When, when that ball doesn't bounce your, your way or the referee makes a, a call that doesn't go your way or the other team gets a vote and they, they outscore you. How, how do you react right to that? You know, whatever the external influence was that you, how do you react to it? That's something that I've always, that I've always preached with kids that I coached for years was, you know, just effort and attitude. You get to control those a hundred percent of the time. The world gets a vote, but so do you. You get to control how you react to something. Um, so how are you going to do that? And that, that leads me into that this next stage of, of the other thing I really wanted to, to dive into, which I think is really, really deep, and we'll have to watch the time because we could be here for hours, is that, that what we talked about a little bit last week, that, that next cutting edge of sports performance and development is not going to be focused as much. Well, I mean, it's still be focused in the weight room, but that next cutting edge is between the of development is happening between the ears and in the biology between the ears more than more than the weight room. Absolutely, we we at Westside have implemented something from a company called Neurotrainer, and it's a VR headset that has software on it from Neurotrainer, and it is to either track or duck or hit balls and they speed up that you get more balls that you have to track. I mean, it, it's intended to really stimulate your brain to a little bit of discomfort. So let's say, Eric, you go through and I put you on the headset and you're trying all these different things that you have a protocol and you feel like you're at, at a pretty good level. But then Brady, you're over here saying, okay, mine is like, way up high and you have no clue his is lower than yours or higher than yours you don't know it's keeping you at your pace because what we're trying to do is stress that brain that physically what will happen in the brain so we've got a couple pilot studies going on right now just started phase two last week we've got 20 staff and faculty and 33 students and they're going through and we're seeing the progress over time. Does this help them feel more calm? Do their grades go up? Last semester, we noticed that the uh, faculty absenteeism of the participants went down 49% more than it had the year before with the same exact people. Now, I'm not saying it's a strong link, but I'm saying if a person is enjoying this experience in the neurotrainer headset and it's bringing value to improve their performance at work <clears throat> or their athletic performance are we are we measuring it in a way that we can say it's making a difference or not and if it's just you know circumstantial evidence that says you know i just it feels good every time i use it then i'm thinking well then that means your immune system is stronger because you're not as stressed so you'll be able to deal with the bacteria and the germs viruses more if you're less stressed so to me it's a plus either way you look at it, but we're trying to get something a little more concrete, a little ri more rigid and, and structured on some of the research. Something you doing. can measure. But we're using athletes. Yep. Everything. I always believe what you measure improves. So I measure everything, 
all the time we're measuring. And how do we try to gamify all these activities? So we create a game within practice sessions. So with the VR, that is kind of like a game. We've got a leaderboard and other things that get you excited about, oh, I want to catch that guy. But we can do that also on the, the football, baseball, basketball arenas and create games within the practice. So, for example, uh, the kickers, that's my responsibility on the team. And we will play games all throughout practice. Can't wear them out, just kick, 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 kick. But I can have them compete against each other in various activities. So we have something called punt tennis. We have punt golf. And we've got the uh, uh, bullet or missile hit was tell, telling Coach Foley from Nebraska the other day about our missile kicks, and he said, oh, I, th- I think I want to try that. But it's all created from games, so mm-hmm. the guys are always paying attention, but guess what they're doing? Because they compete against each other so tightly that they're honing each other. All I have to do is create the environment, mm-hmm. and they're creating the skill level to go up high, high, high. So having the number one kicker in the state and having the leading punter in the state and having the the best snapper in the state are all going on to play college football, they create each other. Right. But we create that same environment both for teachers, staff, students, and any kind of performance activity. Competitors will compete. But you've got to create the environment true. for that. that. That's exactly true. Um we talked, I talked to when we talked last week, I was telling you about how, um, the, the other thing that got me down deep in this rabbit hole, thinking through this stuff was, um, as White was, was recovering from his last concussion and the, the eye movement, basically PT that, that, uh, the doctor gave him to work on that stuff and that, that new concussion recovery protocol, um, that I had never heard of before where we're actually going to like, we're going to stress the system a little bit and then recover just like we would an ankle or anything else. We're going to treat the brain the same way. Um, I thought was super interesting. And when they, when they first evaluated him, it was like, yeah, he's got a pretty good concussion. I mean, not a bad one, but you know, he's got a good one. And, but after a week of doing those eye movement exercises with the metronome, and trying to get that, that he was like within a week, he was maybe a slight headache, but cognitively, functionally back to normal. And I thought that was amazing. <laughs> and so then I, then I got to thinking, holy crap, if we can do this for PT and recovery, is this something we could be doing? Should he be doing this every day? Should he be doing those little eye movement exercises and trying to up that metronome from you know, 200 to 220 because Dr. Kays was telling me about, I meant to check with him. There was a wide receiver, I think played for the Cardinals that they, that they had measured that, that his eye movements were so fast and going back and forth like that. His eye movements were so fast that they, they started off having to only count every other one, like one, two, because it was happening too fast, the counters couldn't count. And then it got to the point they had to like record it and then slow it down so that they could count it. It was off the charts. And that's what got me down this rabbit hole of, of you know, man, if we can make have exercises to make that better, just like we do our muscles, that's got to make huge impacts 
in athletic performance. Absolutely. We have in NeuroTrainer, there is an aspect where you have to look from side to side and it, it can tell how quickly you do that. And as you get better, it makes it harder. So you have to do it quicker and quicker. So the whole purpose is to increase focus, increase speed of decision-making. By the way, stockbrokers now are using the NeuroTrainer to help them make quicker decisions. Increases confidence, it lowers the stress level, um, several other things. But it it's all intended to attack the brain to make it grow and really serve the purpose of whatever it is that you're doing. If you have to make a quick decision in athletics or at the stock market, it'll still work the same part of your brain. Because yeah. it can't have, it can't help but have an impact if you can make that decision. You can recognize... You know, if you take it, you know, on the football field, you know, you're a linebacker. You have to, you have to cognitively recognize certain things, and then you have to process. You have to see it, and then you have to process it, and before you can make a decision and react, and anything that could make those things happen quicker. You know, and it's it's a cliche, but it's 100 percent true. It's a game of inches. You know, it's a hundred yard, hundred yard field, but it's still a game of inches and Brady and I have talked about that a lot, how different things would have been one inch like this way and one inch that way. Um, well, you think too, that when you're impacting the brain, 5% of what our thoughts are from the conscious mind and 97, I mean, 95% is from the subconscious mind. And we have about 70,000 thoughts a day. So that means about 3,500 thoughts are what you consciously think and 60-some thousand are, that's your subconscious mind going on autopilot for a lot of things. We don't think about blinking. We don't think about breathing and walking. But what about other decisions? And if we can embed through repetition, either through a headset or visualization, which is shown to, to really improve performance, just visualizing, because it still wires the brain the same way as if you really did it. Mm -hmm. And they actually did an experiment once with basketball players where they said, we're going to split them in two different groups that are equal in terms of their ability to shoot free throws. They split them evenly. So the first group, they were to practice 100 shots every day for two weeks. Second group practiced nothing but in their head 100 shots every day. So how many shots did the group that imagined it miss? None. But how many did the group that practiced it, and if they were lucky, they missed 30%, 25%. That means they practiced some bad ones, too. So they're wiring their brain inefficiently. And then they had them come back together, and the group that just visualized destroyed the group that did the practice. So we got to get to that subconscious mind, get to that brain and wire that. And that's where the, the headset thing or visualization or, or there's many other techniques that can get to that subconscious or that 95% thinking. So when you are out there on the athletic field, you're not, you don't have time to think, but you have time to react. And it, it's hilarious to me to watch a reporter come up to a athlete and say, so what were we thinking when that <laughs> happened? And then they try to think of what it was, but they can't explain it. Because it's too deep and the conversation wouldn't last too long. But the subconscious mind can process somewhere around 20,000 bits per second. And the conscious mind can only do seven. Mm -hmm. So you want all that subconscious mind really working in your favor during athletic because it's so fast. Yeah. 
it's nothing that a hundred it's nothing that ten thousand reps won't fix that's what i always told my boys there's, good reps there, yeah, yes <laughs> no and and i did have to put that caveat in there there isn't ten thousand good reps will fix any problem but brady and i have talked about that subconscious thing because it applies to to my job too you know we've talked about a couple a couple scenarios and we were just talking about one like the 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 play in Rutger, at Rutgers where you know everything happened and I remember it happened I remember it was one of those things where everything you hear people talk about in those moments where it all slows down like in slow motion I remember having all those thought processes in in split seconds like fractions of a second that play of that play taking place okay this 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 and and the rest of it happened automatically right i didn't have to think about grabbing my the other camera and and pulling it up my body just did it and and so it's it's the same kind of thing exactly where where things just become automatic so what's that quote i heard the other day somebody's meme and it's been it's been making the rounds because i've seen it a lot lately where um, amateurs practice until they get it right and pros practice until they can't get it wrong. Yeah. And I thought that, that, that sums it up right there. Yeah. You know, it's not enough to just get it right once or twice. You have to do it until getting it wrong isn't really an option. Well, the author, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, he's written a bunch of books, Tipping Point and uh, Blink, it's for one, there was an instance of a firefighter that was like one of the the higher ranking firefighters and he and his guys went into this house and were trying to put the fire out and something inside of him said we got to get out of here and so the, he said everybody out they got out and within 7 seconds after getting out the whole floor collapsed the real fire was underneath not where they were standing asking him to explain how he knew he couldn't piece the pieces together. Mm -hmm. So through all of the stuff that we're all trying to do is how can we get that mind to work in our favor? How do we train that brain? How can we know when to listen? Because like I was saying earlier, before we went, before we went on recording that, that just about, I, I can track just about every bad decision I've made in my life. And there was, it was when I, consciously talked myself out of that little voice right that little voice that gut reaction was telling me no this is bad this is wrong you don't want to be involved with that and but my conscious mind or my ego or other parts wanted wanted to be part of that or make that decision so i talked myself out of the gut reaction and man just about every single time it was wrong (laughs) so (laughs) Well, Einstein says doing the same thing over and over again is insanity. Well, absolutely. Expecting different results. I I never (laughs) said I was sane. So um, did you have anything else, Brady? Um, No, I guess going back to the process thing, um, because this is one thing I I went back. If Husker football fans are still listening and you're like, where's the Husker football stuff? Here's a little tidbit for you. Um, When Garrett McGuire, new receivers coach, and everybody kind of knocks on his lack of coaching experience, he was – um, asked and interviewed in his first year at the Carolina Panthers, like how he's handling it and how he's um, taking it in. And he was kind of explaining it, trying to like, this is a kid who's been the son of a coach and one of the most yeah. successful high school football coaches, now college coaches in Texas. And he wanted to be a coach since the second grade and kind of asked him, you know, 
what do you what appeals about it to you and he's trying to explain and then eventually just says i just kind of love the process of it i love the process of watching film and breaking it down and matt rule was six feet away and matt rule just smiled like he didn't even realize it but he heard that and just smiled and thought i don't i don't know i just i love to hear that from a kid and obviously now he's he's at nebraska so you've got a a young wide receivers coach who is just about the process. And I think that that's kind of a running theme. If you really ask a lot of the coaches um, at Nebraska now, what about coaching appeals mm-hmm. to them? And they, they say the process um, flipping it on to with like with this job and how I approach it, because Eric and I kind of talk similar, like I approach writing and words the same way that you approach photos. And I think because I, if I were to have my sports like playing career back, I'd like to do things a little bit different because since then I've kind of tried to, being a kind of a lapsed Buddhist, I take like a, I can't remember what monk it was, but said like, I will swallow it all. You know, the unconscious mind, their conscious mind, they focus on different things. I, I can't control the exterior factors around me. I will take it all in and the bad energies, the bad ideas, I'll just, you know, cast it aside, take everything in and accept it and process it. And that's kind of like, I go back to the Georgia Southern game last year, you know, the game itself bad energy, bad everything about it. And you could get the sense after the the press conference and taking the elevator back up, I think Scott Frost might be fired tomorrow. But I remember walking from the press conference and walking back to um, the elevators to get up to the the press box. And I just stopped because there were like a couple of groups of kids, like young kids, um, just playing catch in Memorial Stadium, just throwing the ball around like they would any other time. And I just stood there took it in, wrote it down a little bit, and it appeared in my story. I didn't know if it would or not, but it's – it was – to me that was proof of, like, regardless of what happens, whatever happens with the game, this will go on. Kids will in Nebraska love football. Parents in Nebraska love their kids playing football. So football will be played. The ball will be thrown. Everything like that will happen. The sun will go up. The sun will come up. The sun will go down, and there will be football at the end of all of it. So – that's kind of where I wish if I, if I had to go back, I'd like to tell myself, take it all in. Like you've, you know, approach things a little bit differently. And now like here in Utah, Garrett, about the, the mindset and, and all these kids, I have to remind myself. And I think a lot of our listeners probably do is like, these are kids. This is an impressionable age. And if you're having them tap into these parts of the mind or having them, um, get into that wiring of their mind or even harness a little bit of that subconscious thought or, or at least be somewhat cognizant of it is really, it is like cutting edge because, you know, being an impressionable age or a young age where the brain is still growing and forming and everything. It's just really fascinating of how, how do you get that at a younger age and what does that do as it grows? You know, what, what does that do for a forming brain is, is a fascinating thought to me. Well, I think when you can show them, something like data, which I'm big on data. I mean, if we had no scoreboard to watch, I don't know how long any of us would watch football. It would be boring watch a bunch of guys tackle and grab and like, I don't get the point and what's going on. Okay, I'm leaving. Ten minutes, we'd be done. But we've got to measure. We've got to create those games so we can measure everything all the time. So then they can start to see, wow, I am getting better. So, for example... Again, back to the kickers, I would clock their hang times for both kickoff, their punts, and when they were freshmen, it was absolutely hilarious. You know, they're kicking a, a two-point 
five hang time, which they think is wonderful. And I know <laughs> you're going to be in high school. You're going to be having to shoot a, a three, five to be really, really good. And, or four. Now you're starting talking college. You get up there at four and a half. Now you're talking elite level. Well, we had one of our punters. He was kicking the two fives. And by the time he was a senior, the last day at the state championship game, he hung a 5.5 out on the hang time in pregame and saying how far he had come, you know, but because it was always being measured. And he was at that time was getting ready for the game, but he knew he's measuring me. I got to break break mm-hmm. my record, and so he did, because we were always measuring, always making sure. And I think that that that's helpful. And the other thing that I would add to you, Brady, is I tell the kids I think I look at a samurai sword, and those are like the most elite level sword weapons that you can have. Well, to create a samurai sword, it has to be folded and pounded 10,000 times before it becomes a sword. So when I hear, like you saying, I wish I would have done things differently, but I'm thinking you're probably going to be one of the most exceptional writers and storytellers because you've been folded and pounded so many times to become that samurai sword that now you'll be so much more wise and incisive because of that. And the same, some of the conversations you and I had earlier that I see that same thing, that you're becoming that same samurai sword in your own endeavors. And so when the kids know, okay, it doesn't feel so good, and I say, well, but you're becoming samurai sword, so you need a little folding and pounding. And But just take it that way. You're you're getting tougher. You're getting better. And it's not, you know, that's not the end of the world today. It's going to be different tomorrow. But you've got to keep that chin up and go after it and know if you really want to become this great, human being and reflected in sports or in life, you're going to get full and pounded. That's the only way that you can become that good. And then they can start to resign themselves to the fact that, okay, that's going to happen. And I guess it's okay. Okay. It's, it's late August and we're halfway through camp and trying to remind them that, okay, it's just another folding and pounding day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to be pleasant. It's just, you're just getting folded and pounded. But you are going to be a samurai sword one day. Yes. I like that. All right. That's a great place to end this. Otherwise I could keep this conversation going all day. I like to thank Garrett for coming in. Brady as always. I'm Eric and this is the eye test. Sports Network Production.